You're listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. For 30 years, the Forum on Workplace Inclusion has served as a convening hub for those seeking to grow their leadership and effectiveness in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion by engaging people, advancing ideas, and igniting change. Our 2019 conference, Bridging the Gap, is April 16th through 18th, 2019, and the call for presentations is now open. Visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash CFP for details. In this episode, hear playback from our May 18th webinar titled Virtual Engagement for Tangible Results, New Ways of Using Social Media and Inclusion with hosts Judith H. Katz of the Khalil Jamison Consulting Group and Rob Gunnard of Biogen and Ben Rue as the webinar coordinator. And thank you to our webinar sponsor, Aon, for making this possible. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's webinar. <clears throat> I'm Ben Rue, Program Coordinator at the Forum on Workplace Inclusion. I am very pleased to have you here for today's webinar, Virtual Engagement for Tangible Results, New Ways of Using Social Media and Inclusion, with presenters Judith Katz of the Khalil Jamison Group, Consulting Group, and Rob Gennard of Biogen. This is the third webinar in the 2018 Forum on Workplace Inclusion webinar series sponsored by Aon. We hope you enjoy this experience and find this information helpful in your work and join us for future webinars. Today, Judith and Rob will be presenting for about 45 to 50 minutes with Q&A at the end. Please utilize your chat feature in order to ask questions throughout. I um, To note, when you are asking questions in the chat, make sure to choose the option that says... uh, to all panelists and attendees, not just to panelists. Uh, there will also be a poll um, in this webinar, so please feel free to participate in that. At the, end of the we- at the end of this webinar, you'll be asked to fill out a brief survey on your experience. Please take a moment to fill out this survey as your feedback helps us shape future webinars. We truly appreciate your open and honest feedback. Today's webinar is SHRM and HRCI eligible. It is also being recorded and it will be posted to our website next week and available for download via podcast. Visit our website forum on workplaceinclusion.org or on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn for more information. Uh, The SHRM and HRCI activity codes will be provided at the end of the webinar. We will also be announcing the winner of our registration contest featuring an autographed book set by Judith Katz. The titles we will be giving away are The Inclusion Breakthrough, Unleashing the Real Power of Diversity, Be Big, Step Up, Step Out, Be Bold, and Opening Doors to Teamwork and Collaboration, Four Keys That Change Everything. I will be handing the, I will be handing things over to Judith and Rob shortly. However, before I do, we have a brief message from our sponsor. Where will today take you? Where will you take today? Will you step out into who you are, into who you can be? so much for that lovely message aeons i will go ahead and hand it over to judith and rob great thanks so much i will um start my screen just one moment if you will welcome everybody we're just really glad to be here today um 
and uh, to be involved with this webinar. We love the forum and we love the message Aeon just gave. This is Judith Katz, because um, I think in many ways it speaks to what we'll be talking about today uh, in terms of how do you really unleash the potential and the thinking of people um, in an organization. And Rob and I will talk a little bit about this wonderful project that we did at Merck um, that really was really marrying uh, inclusion work with a virtual technical network. Um, just a little bit about me and the firm. Um, Judith Katz with Khalil Jameson Consulting Group. Our firm was started in 1970 by Khalil Jameson. I think we're about one of the longest running uh, diversity and inclusion and culture change firms that are still in existence. And I always say we work with good organizations that want to be better. Um, and we were very fortunate to spend five years within Merck uh, in the manufacturing division, um, working 29,000 people across the globe. And one of my key partners uh, was Rob Gennard. And Rob, why don't you just say a little bit about who you are and kind of your experience a bit at Merck and then where you are today. Hi, all. Uh, thanks, Judith. Uh, so my name is Rob Gennard. I currently lead a uh, process analytics group in the manufacturing division here at Biogen. So I have a very technical job. Um, but I'm very passionate about um, organizational performance and inclusion and all kinds of stuff. So uh, back when I was at Merck uh, a few years ago, Judith and I got connected around um, some inclusion uh, work that was going on in the entire division. Mm -hmm. And um, at the same time, I was doing some work in knowledge management. How do we get knowledge to flow across the organization in a better way? Um, and knowing that a lot of knowledge is tacit in people's heads, and that means you have to have people behaving and having the right mindsets um, so that we can um, really um, engage together around it. So uh, Judith and I kind of connected the dots together and um, saw how uh, inclusion was really a powerful force to help us um, really show up better together around um, making our knowledge flow across the organization. So uh, very excited to be here and uh, looking forward to chatting more about the project. Thanks, Rob. So um, for today, uh, one thing we'll manage, and Rob will post in the chat uh, room as well, is this, this conversation that we're having today was also published in the Organization Development Practitioner um, that Rob and I, along with some other colleagues at Merck, Marty Lippa, and others, um, uh, had published. So if anybody's interested in more information, they can get that from there. Um, so a little bit about what we're going to do today. Um, we're going to really talk about uh, some of the interesting challenges about inclusion. And as I said, Merck was involved in a major inclusion effort, at least in the manufacturing division. But we also have some challenges, obviously, in the business. And how do we bring those two together? So we're going to talk about how we were able to overcome some of the barriers of trust, hierarchy, and not invented here through the use of inclusion and the virtual technology network. Um, we'll talk a little bit about how to learn how to build a more reliable foundation for knowledge management. I mean, many organizations are struggling today with the challenge that people are leaving, particularly a more seasoned workforce, and how do we get that tacit knowledge, as, 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 as um, Rob was saying, into a way to codify that, and how do we use inclusion as a way to really uh, leverage that. Um, how do we hear strategies for using inclusion to, and tools to enable that knowledge flow to happen? across the organization. And one of the things we really got excited about, which we'll talk about today, is we really talked about this as creating a movement. So it wasn't just, you know, an application of a, of, a, of a network. It was really how do we create a movement that people really shift the ways in which they engage and ways in which they do work in which they solve problems throughout a very complex and exciting organization. And as we start, um, what we want to do, um, my computer will is just kind of in the chat, if people would uh, just kind of give us a few words about what's interesting to you about the use of inclusion in technology. So I know many of you are probably doing work on this um, in some different ways. So we just love to hear and see a few comments, in the, and please post it in the chat, and we'll um, kind of talk that through, um, is kind of what, why are you interested in this? What's, why are you here today? Um, so are you using technology in a way and inclusion in your work? Or what questions might you have so that as we go through the day, we can kind of uh, hear that and respond to that. So we'll just wait a moment. Um, what are the top diversity leading companies doing with tech to reach people where they are is one of the questions. Um, to better engage our global workforce in the DNI program, great. Okay, thank you. Emma, um, using technology to support DNI work, mm -hmm. great. 
good. Thanks, Karen. Okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll see that some others, um, once somebody's using a One Connect site, what role is the smartphone playing? Wow. I don't know if we'll get into all these today. You're 50% telecommuter employees. Great. Okay. All right. So I'm going to just um, put up a poll. And if you would, just for a minute, we want to just kind of get a sense of whether or not people are actually using this in your organization. Okay, so we've got, okay, we'll just wait another minute and see what these responses are. Okay, how technology helps or hinders inclusion. Thanks, Dave. How do you bring the person-to-person -person connection through technology? All right. Okay, so we'll end our poll and just see what we've got. So it looks like we've got about 57% yes. So we'd love to hear from you as we go through the stage two. Um, and 43% no. So great. So we'll kind of engage around this today um, to hopefully give you. Now, we, we're talking today specifically about a specific organizational problem that Rob will address. But there are lots of implications and manifestations of how to apply a lot of what we're talking about. Um, so hopefully we'll respond to the questions that you have in this conversation today. Okay, um, I did that, and we're gonna just move. So Rob, why don't you kind of talk a little bit about the need and the context in which we were um, dealing with the technology and the, the BTN. Great, thanks Judith. So um, this is uh, goes back a ways, but um, in 2009, um, when I was at Merck, uh, we had a large merger slash acquisition with Shearing Plow. So, um, each was a $40 billion company with, you know, roughly 60,000 employees in each. Uh, so now we're, when, when the integration started, we're, we're a company of 120,000. Um, and so it's a very large organization. Um, and so just, you know, if you've been through integrations, that alone is a big challenge, right? So, um, all of the challenges that go around that about connecting uh, the people from uh, one organization to the other. So there's, there's a big challenge in that. The second is really that um, Merck was pretty well uh, established for a long time, very deep scientific company. So um, even the Merck manual, which many physicians use, um, is, is something that's, you know, over 100 years old. So it's a very deep scientific culture. Um, and, and, which manifested itself in great ways, but also in not so great ways, because what ended up happening is, you know, everybody was sort of vying to be the smartest person in the room, um, which, which can lead to good things um, in terms of some um, problems being solved. But a lot of times problems wouldn't even be made visible because of, um, of sort of this culture of being the smartest in the room and problems don't get made visible because it's unsafe. So, um, one of the things that we were already trying to do prior to the uh, merger was really start to shift from um, a knowing organization to a learning organization and recognizing that even as deep scientists were standing on the shoulders of giants and that uh, nobody knows everything. <laughs> so so uh, really getting on other street corners and a, a lot of the other work that, you know, uh, we were doing with inclusion really were trying to work on that. Um, and we did have very big and complex problems to solve, certainly scientific problems, but now with the acquisition, um, organizational challenges as well. Um, and the organization, um, not only just being large, but is globally dispersed. So we're in over 50 countries um, and over 90 different sites. So um, it makes for, you know, some of the questions about, you know, telecommuting and things like that. It's a very similar kind of problem because you have all these people working around the same type of work, um, but they're all, you know, uh, geographically dispersed. So how do you get those folks connected? Um, and in the meantime, too, we were restructuring um, all of the science, technology, and commercialization organization. And that's the group that really uh, developed the products and commercialized them and really did all the technology support for the whole company. So it was a very uh, big, big challenge, and the need was definitely there. So, Judith, maybe next slide. And so um, one of the interventions that we put in place um, was this thing we called the virtual technical network. And so along with many of the strategies that we had going on, one of the big ones was really about knowledge management. So the, what we were trying to do with knowledge management is that recognizing that the workforce is in a knowledge economy and that the knowledge that we, uh, that we use and we generate are really assets. 
And when you think about assets, they have a very big value to them, right? Um, and so you spend a lot of time and effort to generate a knowledge asset, like how do I develop or make this, produce this product? Um, but if we don't manage it that way, then we actually lose a lot of value. And so this is not a unique uh, problem for uh, Merck. It's actually a very big problem for a lot of us, right? Um, so we're really trying to uh, put our arms around that. So we developed a KM program um, around that. So for the virtual technical network itself, it's one one capability within that KM strategy. So it's really a few things. So it's... Uh, Social computing technology. So if you think about, you know, uh, Facebook or if you use Yammer internally or any of these social media technologies where you're, spo- where you're connecting people to people through technology um, in sort of a, a, a real-time way, um, there's a platform around that. But that alone isn't really going to get you the engagement and the, the knowledge flow that you want. Um, the other piece is really some KM principles, right? So the, I mentioned the first KM principle, which is really around thinking about knowledge as an asset. But there's other things about um, the other thing I mentioned, which is knowledge comes in multiple forms. So a lot of KM uh, efforts are really focused around documents or explicit knowledge, but actually over 80% of knowledge in organizations actually is in people's heads. So how do you get that knowledge to flow across the organization, right? And what does that take? So that takes humans. And so you're really operating in a human network um, and a globally dispersed network that you need to connect. Um, and, but for, for that knowledge to flow, you have to have the right mindsets and behaviors. So one of the things that we see a lot in tacit knowledge flow is that knowledge is power and that people don't necessarily want to share information because then if I, I hand it to you, then I don't have the same value that I did before. Um, and then the other, the other way around too, um, which is I don't feel safe to share knowledge because I might not, it might not look Right, or I might it might look like I don't know what I'm talking about, especially in a very knowing culture. So by putting all of these things together into sort of a capability versus you know these individual elements, um, we really start to take a holistic look at this and really try to see if we could find a way to kind of put all these things together. So that was um, you know what we did in terms of putting the virtual technical network in place. I think we can go to the next slide, Judith, and you can take there. Absolutely. So, so as Rob was saying, so one of the things that that we would that we as we were partnering with Rob and um, and the Science and Technology Organization, Merck had been in the manufacturing division, had been involved with looking at inclusion and as an important part of how the organization was going to operate. The head of manufacturing was really clear; he had a very good technical uh, workforce and technical leaders, but what they didn't have was people who understood how to leverage differences and really get people to feel included. So while the the backdrop of the same time that this Merck Sharing Plow uh, acquisition was happening, the same time we were really looking at how do we engage inclusion. And the funny thing was when we first started this intervention, the head of manufacturing said to us, I have 11,000 people in manufacturing. I've got X number of plants. I'm not going to get any more people, so I have to really make sure we're leveraging all the talent um, and everybody's energy in the organization and really leveraging our differences. And then this sharing cloud acquisition happened, and now it was, I have 29,000 people, we've got to right-size the network, and we've got to make sure that everybody's really able to contribute fully and make sure we're leveraging our differences across the globe. And so that was kind of like this major intervention that we were involved with. What was interesting in terms of how we saw the work was inclusion was not a what, And um, for those of you who've been around us a long time in terms of KJCG, you know that our work is, inclusion is a how. It's about how we work. So we really wanted to leverage inclusion and how the BTN, and this is Rob's brilliance and his colleagues' brilliance, how the BTN could be used, but knowing just to put it out there wasn't going to be adopted. So how do we get people around the globe to adopt it? in a way that they felt valued, that their voices were heard, that they could deal with some of the cultural barriers um, that were in place around being the smartest people in the room, as well as some of the issues around making problems visible. Because one of the challenges was, particularly in an environment where a network's being right-sized and there's some downsizing because of plants, et cetera, is that people wanted to show their value in their work. 
So if I had a problem I couldn't solve, was that showing me as being weak or me not being part of what needs to be for the future? So we really wanted to leverage inclusion and we needed to drive buy-in and adoption of the VTN. The VTN, just in terms of kind of giving you a sense of what it is, is, is kind of like a Facebook platform. So people filled out a profile and then they would talk about their expertise and kind of where they worked and give people something about themselves personally. But what we wanted everybody to do is get those profiles filled out so that we could know who was in the network and what skill sets they had. And one of the things that had changed dramatically was it used to be that at a site, people had kind of all the resources that they needed to solve complex technical problems at that site. And as resources were being reallocated, as the organization was shifting, as new kinds of plants were being brought on, what was necessary was that a problem necessarily couldn't be solved locally. Now we had to think of that problem, you know, who else had that knowledge in the network? And they had to move fast. So we really needed to drive the buy-in and adoption. And what if I made a problem visible to you, but I hadn't told my manager? And would that be okay given the hierarchy? So how much could we work peer-to-peer and across that network and get information shared? So it felt like a lot of risk for people um, because, you know, putting information out there when um, my manager might find out about it afterwards felt risky to people. And we needed to create some guidelines, frameworks, or engagement that created safety because, again, safety and speaking up was so important in this conversation and in this skill set. So we're going to talk a little bit about what we did. So first thing um, Mm -hmm. that we did is we really wanted to leverage some of the um, guidelines and behaviors for inclusion into the network itself. And one of the things that we had been working with is uh, inclusive behaviors in the organization and really sharing both inclusive behaviors and inclusive meeting norms as part of the inclusion effort. So these are some of the behaviors, and we wanted to make sure that they were also on the network as well. Um, So for those of you who are talking about how do we use social media, social networking is like, do we have a framework? Not everything goes. And we, you know, if we look at social media today, we know how much is going on right now that feels abusive to people or bullying or, so how do you make sure that that, those kinds of behaviors are not going to happen on a network like this? So we really needed to build trust in the community. We wanted to make it safe enough for people to seek information and share information Really, one of the behaviors that we worked with on inclusion is people really listening to each other as allies or challenging as allies. So how did you really kind of create that framework to enable people to feel safe? And getting people clear about what do you need for safety? In fact, Fred Miller and I are just finishing our new latest book called Safe Enough to Soar, Accelerating Trust, Inclusion, Collaboration in the Workplace. And we feel like fundamentally under a lot of our work on diversity inclusion is how do we make it safe for people, Right to speak up, to bring their voice, that they may see a problem that others may not see? How do we create an environment that safety is really critical and and fundamental to people's ability to really contribute? And we wanted people to understand that they needed to get a 360-degree vision. And when people had a different point of view, that we accepted their frame of reference is true for them. So when we really think about diversity of thought, you know, this notion and this mindset of 360-degree vision was absolutely essential for people to hold as a mindset and a behavior so that if you brought a different point of view or a different way of approaching something, instead of me telling you what was wrong with it, particularly when everyone's trying to be the smartest person in the room, it was about, oh, I never thought about it that way. So really creating that kind of perspective and really thinking about who else needs to be in the room or in the conversation so that people were tapping into diverse thoughts and diverse ideas. And then linking to others' ideas, thoughts, and feelings to really make sure that they were giving energy back. So when people did share an idea, that they got support. You know, and we, uh, Tara Whittle and our firm talking a lot these days about microaffirmations. You know, a lot of times you get microaggressions. Getting people trained to really give the affirmation so that people feel supported and want to continue to contribute in that way. So those are some of the ways in which we... Um, Uh, really kind of set some ground rules about this is what we're seeking in the community. Um, And then what we did was to drive buy-in and adoption. Maybe, um, uh, Rob, you should talk a little bit about this. But we decided to make it fun and create a movement in terms of people joining and being part of the VTN. So it wasn't just rolling out a technical solution or just a solution and here it is. It was really 
kind of thinking about how do we make this fun and get people engaged and kind of leaning in and get some early adapters. So, um, Rob, why don't you talk a little bit about this slide? I think kind of particularly kind of being the, the mastermind of some of this part would be helpful. Sure. So, um, um, <clears throat> excuse me. One one of the things that you know uh, that that Judith taught taught us around inclusion uh, as part of the intervention was to really try to minimize distance between people, right? So, um, and so to do that in a, an environment where we had you know uh, folks that were globally dispersed, folks that had a little natural distance because of this sort of culture of knowing. Um, and then also when you have two companies coming together, there's, cert there's, there's just an immediate level of sort of self-preservation and distrust that's there. So how do we close some of those gaps? And so one of the ways that we tried to do it was just to, to um, connect people around a movement, right, which was, um, first of all, having people um, share their expertise. So even in a knowing culture, that one of the uh, one of the very powerful motivators is that I want to share what I know, right? So if you give people an avenue to share that, um, then that's a very powerful way to sort of get people connected. So the the early part around that was really just having people correct connect via expertise profiles. So we didn't know who was whom in the organization. So by having people create create these expertise profiles, that would be a way for them to sort of manifest themselves to a very large part of the organization. Um, by sharing not only what are they doing right now, but what's in their history. So it's sort of, you know, a little bit of an internal LinkedIn kind of thing, but it was a way to kind of say, hey, I'm here and here's what I know. Um, and so that that kind of generated some energy on in a, on its own. Um, and we had a lot of sort of um, uh, things that we did from a marketing perspective around that, including contests, right? So one of the contests was just like, you know, hey, let's let's um, let's get your profile in. If you uh, if you know, we're going to randomly select people to win iPads and things like that. So that's good. It's kind of a classic communication change management type thing. But then one of the things that we did too, along with other contests, is actually started doing sort of more like um, what I might call uh, virtual um, um, hunts for information. Right, almost like a scavenger hunt. Right. So we would put out we would put out. Uh, questions that say, hey, someone, the first 10 people that can tell me, you know, who's got expertise and how we manufacture biologics, um, you know, you get, you get a prize, right? So it was a way to get some excitement going, but it was a way to actually have people connecting with each other as well. So that we found that to be helpful. Um, the other part is communities of practice. So one of the things that we really wanted to do from a knowledge perspective is really being able to steward knowledge around certain technologies. So one of, one of the ones that we had was around sterile processing. When you process things like vaccines, you have to, you know, keep them sterile. So there's, and there's a lot of knowledge and expertise and art form, honestly, around that. So, so you form a community of practice around it, but instead of having sort of a live community practice in a room, or on the phone, you're doing it virtually. So you form this community of practice where, you know, people can go in and share knowledge. They can uh, post questions um, and people can answer them. And this was a way to get people to kind of engage with each other on a technical uh, dialogue perspective. And, but they're also connected as, as people because we're all experts in this thing. And so we started out with a pilot of about five communities you know, and I think up to now, I think there's over 40 communities online and they have a steward in the middle that actually helps sort of promote and facilitate the conversation. And that was very powerful because people could go into these communities and ask questions and, and get answers in a very quick amount of time um, using that the intrinsic motivator of people wanting to share their expertise. The other piece that was very powerful in this whole thing is really sponsorship, having people at high levels that were actively um, promoting it and saying, hey, you should do this. Um, it's a great thing. And here's why. Um, but also actually modeling the behaviors, right? So modeling going in and asking a question. So being in a knowing culture, having some, uh, uh, someone who's at a senior VP level go in and say, hey, I don't know something. Does anybody else know about this? It really creates a lot of safety um, for others to to kind of do the same thing. Well, if you know our senior VP is asking questions, then maybe I could do it too. I'm not going to have some sort of retribution and you know around that. And so, and having that sort of sponsorship go down from the SVP down to the front frontline manager, it really gave a very safe environment for people to kind of go in questions. 
um, and, and, and also model those behaviors that we're looking for. So those are some of the things that we did to kind of help generate some energy and um, really start to create that movement that Judith had talked about. That's great, Rob. Thanks. And I think the other piece that we did in terms of creating that safety was to really create those frameworks for engagement. So we really kind of, again, to try to ensure that people felt safe, that they weren't ridiculed, that people didn't do snotty little answers, you know, which often happens on a network kind of situation, that people were really asked to do some do's and don'ts. And as, as Rob said, there were stewards who are monitoring the network as well. So this was labor intensive in many ways, but it was also because it was so important to the organization. And I guess the question for some of folks is like, how do we leverage this in an organization that's global and dispersed? around DNI is how do we make sure we put the resources in and the care and the frameworks and the guide rail to really enable the community to engage. Um, so for us, it was really about making sure people were, you know, thinking about the, the foundation of inclusion, but really getting people to, you know, listen to what others were saying, asking clarifying questions, share what you know and think, give people energy back, linking to other people's ideas. So when people put an idea out, they would be like, oh, I really like what you just said, Rob. Here's my thinking about that. So that people didn't just plop, plop, plop. Um, posting what you're learning. So it was like, what do we take away from this? What happened? What were the results? What did we learn from this? Um, and giving context that so people understood enough that really kind of explaining, because it was also a teaching tool for the community as well. And really staying away from, you know, judging or withholding or refusing to share or not linking to people's ideas, um, withholding energy, or, you know, really seeing the BTN as something outside of normal work. I, th I think what's so interesting, um, you know, is the question about people didn't, sometimes we think about there's work and then there's BTN. And in the beginning, people saw it as outside of their work. We saw it as kind of like it's something in addition. And it really became a how. It really became this is how we work. And getting people's mindsets not to change and to also use it as not only just a tool, but a vehicle for problem solving, decision making, you know, solving problems faster, addressing complex problems. Um, so I think this is really an important piece of kind of getting people to understand that it wasn't like this work and then there's a VTN and it's something extra to do. It was really about the ways in which we engage and moving people into a platform to not just see that the sources of, uh, of answers were, you know, right here in my physical environment, but through this global network and creating enough safety that we could ask those questions, as Rob said. Um, so I'm going to move it over to Rob to talk a little bit about the change process and then a little bit about some of the results. I have to unmute my mic here. Um, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the uh, one of as we kind of talked about, there was a lot of change going on. There were multiple strategies going on and many interventions from the culture to uh, business process management to uh, the network changing, um, a lot of organizational changes. So there was a lot of change going on. So we really tried to um, apply some of the uh, management science that we had um, in-house, a lot of a lot of work using uh, the Connor methodology for change. And we really tried to apply that in this case. So um, you know, thinking about um, not only from sort of a people perspective um, or an intent perspective, like what solution are you putting in or just how we're putting it in, but all three. And when you do that, then you really maximize your chances. But then, you know, we really use this, um, you know, the, the commitment curve here to really not only um, measure um, how the change was happening, but also to design interventions so that we could really get to that tipping point where we got to a certain level of um, of the population really kind of adopting and and getting it to that institutionalization piece and so you know we we had designed a lot of um, uh, pulse surveys that asked questions that kind of told us where different parts of the organization were um, on the curve um, but also we would share that data with sponsors and we would you know sort of co-create the interventions that would that would help us get from one step to another and especially when you have such a large organization in different sites you can you can really uh, categorize the, all the data from those pulses um, you know by site or by organization 
and you can say, hey, you know, your organization is doing great. Would you mind working with this other organization to help them get up the curve a little bit more? Or you could kind of say, hey, you, you guys are lagging a little bit. Let's talk about that and see if there's some ways that we can, uh, you know, work together to kind of get that to change. So um, this framework we found really helpful um, in, in doing that work and uh, something that I, I feel was a real uh, enabler of uh, us really getting to sort of the, the tipping point in all of the work. And I would just add that I think what was important was really understanding this is a culture change and the transformational change and the intentionality. So, you know, I think sometimes we, again, do some of these interventions more programmatically, but don't really think about all the elements of how do we get the buy-in, the support, the sponsorship, and really kind of moving people through the, the curve on this. Um, and so I think that, that part of the work was we were doing this overall in the change process that we were involved with in terms of the um, uh, overall inclusion effort and also applying the same methodology, uh, which was kind of a, a core methodology within Merck, um, to really look at this, this whole transformation process through the Connors model. Um, and it was exciting because that's why, you know, when we started building that understanding positive perception was why we created the contests and the movements and the kind of ways of getting people engaged. And Rob will talk a little bit about uh, success stories as another way to kind of build on and get people energized moving into the new model of how we wanted people to engage around as well. Okay, so let's talk about some of the enablers and where we got to. <laughs> So um, one of the things that we, uh, I think, learned a lot from, from, um, from Judith and, and KJCG around inclusion is that it, it was certainly about the how, but it was also about business results. So this, it wasn't just for fun or just from a cultural perspective, but it was actually to help us work, do our best work together so that we could actually drive the best results for not only Merck's patients of the products, but also, but also for our shareholders and, and all of our stakeholders, right? So it's about us doing our best work together. And so um, the results was a very key focus in all of this. So to, to really unleash that, you know, it really, uh, you know, takes people to do that. And, and it's that, that the people where, um, you know, that tacit knowledge, you really have to have the right behaviors. And so, but it, it also is about creativity and creating a space where a creativity can happen. Um, because that creativity then leads to innovation, right? And then innovation leads to results. And so, and, but e even if it's not a new thing, like a transformational type effort that's, that, the, that the network is mm -hmm. actually going to create, even just allowing people to contribute on their normal day-to-day -day work, um, it, really, it really helps enable that because when you start, one of the KM principles is trying to put knowledge into the flow of work. Because um, a lot of times we consider knowledge management important, but it's like, well, I'll do my job and then I'll save my knowledge versus like knowledge is actually part of my job and I'm doing it every day. And so the way that we had put this together is we really tried to get the VTN into the flow of work so that, you know, when people were kind of uh, doing their work every day, they could be in a meeting, they could just show up at work and they could just go in and ask a question or answer questions um, or connect to people. And so by putting it into that flow of work, then not only are we helping sort of the, the improve and transform type work, but we're actually running the business better. So um, those were some of the things that we really, you know, and connecting the dots all together really came up with the results. That's great. And there's some great comments on the uh, chat. So we'll, um, particularly around how do we get DNI. Um, I mean, one was about the, the virtual technical network and how do you create communities of practice. Um, and that maybe you just should say a comment about that, Rob, before we move on. And then I'll talk about the DNI comment as well. I'm sorry, Judith. The, can the, you one, say the, the one, the one, the one that you responded to in the um, in the chat about the the how the knowledge, the tacit knowledge, and the communities of practice knowledge had moved then into the yes. Um, yes. Yes, it's a, so it's a great, it's a great, yeah, it's a really great question around how does, you know, when you get that tacit knowledge exchange in a community, then what happens to it, right? So the, the social media platform that we had was able to, all of those, all of those discussions were actually archived and searchable. So um, that, that was a, a key sort of technology piece of that. Um, but you know how search can work. It's, you know, searches aren't always great. 
Um, but one of the things that's actually one of the parts of the jo job of the steward. So a knowledge steward is someone who's sort of the ringleader in the, in the community that, that is really the central connector and understands, um, uh, the, the content well enough and the, the technology well enough that they can sort of help curate it. Um, and if, and if, uh, the knowledge got to a certain level where it needed to be either more formalized or curated better, the, the steward would actually do that. And if it got to a point where it became sort of a technology standard, they would actually codify a technology standard or, or a position, um, or they could actually uh, put it into, we had a, a platform called um, Tech Platform, where it would actually help describe all of our different uh, technologies. And so um, that's, that's a way that we tried to do that. It's not 100% perfect, um, for sure, but it was a, it was a way to, to kind of maintain that knowledge and make it historical. The other thing, too, is that in a community, it's not just one person that knows that anymore, mm -hmm. right? So you spread that knowledge to other people, and maybe it's not codified. And a lot of tacit knowledge is very hard to write down. It's sort of like, you know, the chef that can make a really uh, nice meal out of a recipe where, you know, someone like me can make an okay recipe, you know, an okay meal. So, so it really helps translate that to others in the network. And then later on, it's in their heads and you go back in and ask the question and they can kind of get it to get it to it quickly versus you having to write, read through a bunch of documents. So hopefully, hopefully that uh, sheds a little light on how we thought about it. Great. And then I think the question about, um, I love this question here, when people here read DNI. White males tend not to be interested in serious or feel rejection. How can we send communication through the tech, not include, not excluding white men? I, I think the thing that we've been really excited about is the more we connect this to the business, the more we see how diversity and inclusion is making an impact in terms of problem solving, decision making, all of that. Then it's not an inclusion-exclusion thing about white men. It's like how do we all need to be leveraging differences and really asking the questions, do we have the right people in the room doing the right work? And hear those different voices. And so it, it becomes more of a bottom line business result as opposed to a choice. Mm. And I think that's a part of what we are excited about when we talk about the results, um, that it moves it from a choice point or a someone feeling like they're not included to we need everyone here to make this happen. And this is a goal or an objective of the organization because we need to solve border problems, or we need to impact a different customer base, or we need to be thinking about more innovation, whatever that, whatever that linkage is. But I think the more we can tie that more powerfully, I think the more possibility we have of people, white men feeling included and not excluded. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little about the scope of the network, and then we can come back to some questions in a little bit, uh, too, to broaden this conversation. So um, Rob, talk a little bit about kind of some of the results. Sure. So um, at the time uh, of the publication of the paper that we sent the link out in the in the chat, um, there were 27 communities, 4,000 members. 40% of those members were outside the U.S. So for a U.S.-based company, it's pretty, uh, pretty powerful to have the cohort that was outside of the U.S. be very engaged in this. So um, it, it really helped drive a lot of the business results that we we're talking about. Um, and we were about about two years in and we had um, a thousand questions um, on all the communities with 3,100 responses. So if you look at that ratio, that's three responses per question. Um, and so that's actually pretty good because um, a lot of us post questions, um, you know, if you think about some of the online communities, you almost sometimes you don't hear back. Um, so, and, and these are very focused responses based on with expertise um, in the area. So, very, very powerful. And those responses actually were, were um, you know, highly value added. They're, you don't get a lot of spurious comments um, and these types of things. So, it was really good. And then lots of new connections. You know, uh, we have so many success stories of like, I didn't even know that your area existed, or wow, I didn't know we did that, or you know, let, hey, I work on that too. Let's connect on that. Um, you're doing some great things. So. You know, if we, you know, we would, we would need a long time to talk about all the new connections, but there are a lot of new connections formed. Um, and so, um, you know, one of the, one of the comments there, uh, questions in the chat is about providing an actual, um, you know, uh, a success story. So one of, you know, one of the early success stories that we had was there was a plant in, in um, Singapore that was having a really bad problem with one of their tablet presses. And come to find out they needed a part for it. 
and they called the vendor for the part and they said it's going to be four months before we can finish uh before we can make that and deliver it to you and four months of loss of production of, of a very um socially impactful drug uh is not a is not a good thing <laughs> um so it would literally shut the plant down so what they did the person um, at Singapore, knew about the virtual technical network, and they went on to the community that's about solids processing and said, hey, does anybody have uh, this part for this tablet press? And within 45 minutes, someone wrote uh, from our West Point facility in Pennsylvania said, we have one of those in a closet here. And so they actually were able to connect. Um, they were sent to, the, the part was sent to Singapore, and within two weeks, the, the machine was back up and running. Um, so it's a very powerful example where, um, you know, people made a problem visible, they connected around it, they solved for the problem, and they, they came to resolution and it actually created a lot of business value. So, um, you know, the, the, the ROI on that, the net present value that was calculated was over $3 million in that one instance because of the lost opportunity cost that you get with not having production. So, and that's one story. So, and there's lots of those types of stories that, you know, that when, and then when you, you share that success story, people say, wow, this is really powerful. And then you sort of generate more energy and you get more people sharing. So, um, just one example I thought I'd share. Thanks, Rob. Um, so let's talk a little about, you know, some of the ways in which people were kind of engaging and some other, I think we have a few more examples to share as well. Yes. So um, on the red there, these are like some of the questions that you would see. Um, have you seen this? Does anyone know? Uh, what else should we be trying? How would you do this? Urgent help. So one of the, one of the actual great use cases that we had uh, for this was really when you had a, uh, an emergency issue in a plant. So oftentimes the first line of defense in an emergency like that is the tech services for that plant and a phone call would go out. But over time, the VTN actually became part of that. And so instead of just having a small population of a couple experts be able to help, now you have a really large uh, population of thousands of people that may have expertise in it that you didn't even know existed or had the expertise. So it was very, very powerful. And then on the flip side, you would get... Um, you know, some, uh, some of the answers to the questions like, hey, did you consider this? Oh, you should talk to this person. Or when that happened to us, this is how we approached it. Oh, here's a link to this document you can try or this website, right? And so we act, the, the, a lot of the inclusion work created uh, what I think is very powerful, which is the language and joining language, right? So it's not judging like, oh, you guys are not very bright. Uh, I can't believe you don't know this you start with language like, hey, had you thought about this? Or, oh, this is how we solved that problem. And it really created a, a much more energized network where people uh, really came to the table and created that safety. So uh, some very, very powerful things in there. And so, uh, and, you know, quickly the impact. Uh, so we did, we did some early uh, discovery work when we did the knowledge management work. And we actually found that 50% of the expertise in the organization was hidden. And, and that was before we did the merger. I would probably say it's probably closer to 80% with the merger. And what the, what the impact was, it actually made that, that expertise visible. Uh, I wouldn't say it's 100%, but it's certainly a lot less than, um, you know, 50% being hidden. Uh, we saw a huge increase in engagement, um, an 81% increase in engagement. And this, again, this wasn't the only intervention. We were doing inclusion work too, but the VTN had a big part in that. It did alleviate the need for us to go up the management chain that could then go across sites and then back down. It, it helped for peer-to-peer -peer interaction and really get the, the organization op operating with very high performance um, there was millions of dollars in business benefit. I articulated one earlier. Um, and we, we did apply for a manufacturing leadership, uh, award in this and, and, uh, got, got, a uh, the 2014, uh, workplace leadership award, um, in, in new ways of working. So that, that wasn't, that was a nice, uh, thing, but really the, the big impact was really being able to have the organization operate a high, much higher performing level so that we could deliver, you know, product to patients. So it was great from that perspective. And I think what's so exciting about that is, you know, for so many of us, it's like we talk about the need for increased engagement. We talk about the need for really enabling people to bring the best you know, back to the Aon 
video that we saw earlier, it's like, you know, creating that workforce, being able to document or show that we were able to make this kind of change is massive. And I think part of our work, whether it's about this or about DNI, is how do we get and, and elucidate the notion about where the hidden expertise is now coming to the fore? How do we show that increased engagement? Um, the up and over thing, I think, was huge because in so many organizations, it's like, you know, we have to go up the chain and, as Rob said, and across the chain to go down the chain. And this enabled that people to just feel free to engage uh, where they needed to, have the right interactions with the right people. So I think these are some of the things not only around the VTN, around technical issues, but can we also think about the implications for our work in DNI and how do we unleash the power of the people in our organization? So you want to, we'll do a couple of lessons learned and then we'll uh, kind of hear from you. Rob, you want to do this? Yeah, sure. So um, I think we had mentioned sponsorship before, but sponsorship is just absolutely critical because um, it really created the right environment for, for people to show up um, and also help take away a lot of the barriers and just model the behaviors. Uh, generally, we had a wonderful, wonderful sponsor um, at the at the senior most level. So uh, I know this project wouldn't have gone as well without that. Um, certainly aligning with business priorities, as we talked about, this wasn't just about how we behave. It was about driving results. And we made that a, a large part of the focus. Um, you know, that the inclusive part, right? So I think the fact that we were going down the journey of inclusion and giving people uh, the language and the understanding of um, the, uh, of the different behaviors and the mindsets that really help, um, it, it made this very much more powerful. Uh, we talked about um, embedding KM in the flow. Um, you know, getting this into people's daily work was is key. And uh, I know there's even still challenges to this day with that, but um, because we're so, you know, there's so many things demanding our attention um, to keep things like this into the, that flow of work is, uh, is, is always a challenge and it changes, but it's key to, to making this work. The other piece we talked about was stewardship. You really need that central connector um, and someone who can, you know, sort of be the first follower, but also um, help to connect the dots between people and people in the knowledge um, and keep that energy going. They're sort of the not only the knowledge steward, but they're also the energy steward. They're sort of, you know, keep keeping the the, the community alive and 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 nurtured, and then telling the new stories. So the success stories were really powerful, and especially when you know there were challenges in the past where it's like, oh, you know, that group they never share their knowledge. They're they're terrible. Um, but when they actually do share their knowledge, you got to say it, right? Because otherwise, there's a fundamental assumption that. Um, things don't change. But if you tell the new story, then it actually shifts the conversation. And, um, you know, I think that was a very powerful concept that, that the inclusion work really brought in. Great. Thanks, Rob. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so I think, you know, as we think about just creating and sustaining the momentum is really, I mean, there are three things that we would say, and I think it just kind of builds on uh, what, what Rob was just talking about was we really want to give people energy back. In other words, support and energy and positive uh, uh, acknowledgement to their willingness to lean into discomfort because that's kind of a fundamental inclusive behavior. It's like change means we got to be different. Um, so leaning into discomfort was critical and it meant that, you know, doing something new, challenging people as an ally, not challenging people in a way that they felt criticized and, and, you know, like many organizations, Merck is not alone in terms of people feeling judged or feeling like they can't bring their voice. Um, so enabling if they felt challenged or being able to do that, to do it in a way that's an ally. Um, and then sharing people really being able to, when they share their expertise and experience, again, acknowledging it, giving them support. Um, as Rob said, changing the story, you know, it, it's got to be an important part of this. Where's ways we've been successful and focusing on the successes, I think is important creating momentum as opposed to focusing on what didn't work. And, and, and when it doesn't work, to really see that as an opportunity for continuous improvement. That's why the commitment curve is so important. And really understanding that this is about working with peers um, and peer-to-peer -peer and really understanding that this is about enabling and giving recognition for people to work peer-to-peer. Um, and really to the people who did contribute and the people who were stewards. So building into the reward system a different way of um, enabling people to get some support and recognition for the contribution. So this wasn't like day job and then doing this. 
we had to build into the performance review process the contributions because that was such an important part. Um, so that becomes kind of some of the kind of ways of maintaining this um, momentum and engaging people in a way that's quite different, but recognizing that it's really a change process. So we know there's been some comments on the um, chat, um, and maybe we can just say some of them a little bit out loud and want to see if there's any other comments or questions that people had um, as you think about how to approach this uh, in your own organization. Rob, do you want to just read the ones that you've just been responding to, and then I can kind of talk a little bit about um, one other application we use in another client system? Sure. So um, I can't read the name, but, uh, you know, it, there was a, com a question around, you know, that these types of networks can be all consuming for folks um, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and understand like, so one of the, one of the things um, that we tried to do in all of this is to acknowledge that the VTN is not going to solve all of their problems, right? This is one capability in their toolbox that can help support them do, to do their best work and connecting it to the business. So I think, I think we tried to sort of have an antecedent around that. Um, and we didn't, honestly, we didn't find much of that Facebook effect where mm -hmm. it's addictive and you're just kind of looking for that, you know, the attention span and the dopamine that you get when you get replies and things like that. We didn't find much of that because people's attention was being taken by so many different things. Um, and if it, did, if it wasn't really true to, truly adding value to folks, um, and there was a little bit of a safety problem with people feeling like their bosses might think that the Facebook effect might come in. And so they were actually very cautious to use it at first because they're like, oh, I don't want my boss to think that I'm just sitting here, you know, uh, answering questions and working on my profile all day and not doing anything. So there was a little bit of natural sort of tendency for people to be a little cautious about that. So that's what we found. It, it, it could be different in different places, but that's what we saw. Great. I, I think the only other thing I would say is um, I gave uh, myself and Gretchen Rosworm from Selenies did a presentation at the forum uh, this past conference in which we talked about a different application in which we actually were building inclusive leadership using engagement groups and a form of what they call chatter, which is a Salesforce platform. And so we were creating these groups of people, leaders to learn about inclusion that met on their chatter groups. And in a similar way, were top leadership, 300 leaders from across the company, um, who were involved with a group of 10 people prior to a major global leadership meeting. And they were learning about inclusive behaviors with each other, peer to peer, and having a safe place that as leaders, they could qu ask questions, experiment, try on new behaviors, and then really look at how they brought that into their own organization. So a whole other way of thinking about um, using technology, but again, we created safety in how we created those groups. We're very intentional about who was in the groups. There was a leader who took responsibility to form the group, engage the group like the stewards. Um, so it wasn't about knowledge management, but it was about learning about inclusion into the organization. And um, again, that's a paper that actually is going to be part of a book that Bernardo Ferdman and some of his colleagues are uh, working on right now. So there's a chapter about that that if people are interested, I'd be happy to share as well in terms of that technology. But I know we've got about three minutes left. Um, I don't know. I don't see any other questions that we have. Um, so I'm wondering, Ben, if we should turn this over to you and last words of what you need from the community. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Judith. And thank you, Rob. And thank you for, to all our attendees and um, for, for everyone who participated today. I want to also give a special thanks to our sponsor, Aon, and also a special thanks to Tara, who helped us set up earlier. <laughs> um, um, as promised, the SHRM activity ID for the session is the number 18-JFB41. And I'll go ahead and type that in the into the um I'm I'm gonna type these into the into the chat as well for you guys. And then the HRCI uh activity ID is 354243. Again, that's gonna be in the chat chat section and our lucky winner of our first uh, registration contest is david collier of the office of mark dayton david uh congratulations we'll be reaching out to you to get your mailing information to get uh those books sent to you 
Um, please, uh, um, please join us for our next forum, web, our next forum on workplace inclusion webinar: Women in Leadership in Engaging Global Women, with presenter Maria Lorraine. I'm sorry, Lorraine Kaminsky on June 21st. Uh, for those of you who are in the Twin Cities area, join us for our upcoming Diversity Insights Breakfast, returning to the work, returning to the work, healing and self-care for DEI practitioners with presenter Camille Cyprian of Centered Spaces, Healing and Wellness. On It's going to be on Thursday, June 7th at 8 a.m. And for more information on all our upcoming events, DEI resources, and contests, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or LinkedIn, Facebook, and on Twitter. Just search Forum on Workplace Inclusion. Again, thank you so much to Judith and Rob for your for a wonderful presentation today. And thank you all for attending. And like I said, I'm just going to go ahead and type these the codes in here. So that's the SHRM code and HRCI. And also I'm going to include the link to the survey. I think then there was a question about the slides. Can we um, get that to people? Or yes, the slides, I'm sorry, I missed that. The slides, uh, the slides will be posted onto the website as well as the recording of the webinar with um, next week. And we're happy, Rob and I are happy to answer any other questions. If you want to contact us directly, um, feel free to judithcast at kjcg.com and I'll send it on to Rob as well. Thanks everybody for a great Thanks day. Thanks so much. Appreciate Thank you so it. much everyone for attending. Again, thank you, weekend. Rob and Judith. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. Subscribe to our podcast to get updates on the latest episodes. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.